Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today, we're going to talk about a book that has been getting a lot of attention, and deservedly. It's about the disappearance and suspected murder of Jimmy Hoffa, a man who was at the forefront of the labor movement in America, but also had close connections with the mafia. On July 30th, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. The commonly articulated view is that Hoffa was killed in a mafia-related hit, and that his friend and longtime associate, indeed almost his son, Charles Chucky O'Brien, kidnapped him and drove him to the spot where he was murdered. My colleague Jack Goldsmith disputes this version of events. Jack is a Harvard Law professor. He also used to head the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice in the George W. Bush administration. And Chucky O'Brien is, in fact, his stepfather. Jack is the author of a new book called In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. I recently had the chance to talk to him about it. Jack, I'm thrilled that you could join us. This is a a great opportunity for me to talk to you about something that's been very close to your heart, not just in the last six or seven years that you've been writing it, but in some ways your whole life. So congratulations on the book, first of all. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me here. I want to start with something that might be relevant to the younger uh, demographic of our podcast, and that is, who is Jimmy Hoffa? Other than the fact that he disappeared, which I think everybody knows of whatever age, his great significance for American labor history has, I think, been lost. So tell a little bit about that. Right. So people under 60 don't really have a sense of Hoffa's importance in American history. Um, But he was a very consequential figure in American history. He was the president of the Teamsters Union from 1957 to 1967, but more importantly than that, for 20 years from the 40s until the 60s, 
He was probably the most consequential and certainly the best known uh, American labor leader at a time when, unlike today, unions were a, a large force in American life. And he led what was the most powerful union in the country and the Teamsters, the Teamsters Union, which was primarily or largely truckers. That's how it began. But one of Hoffa's commitments was to organizing anything that moves, as he put it. So he expanded the Teamsters jurisdiction dramatically. And so he was this very consequential labor leader. And at a time when labor was starting to stagnate, the Teamsters were still growing. He was a labor organizing genius. And he held the promise, and it was a theoretical promise, but he held the promise of taking the labor union in a very different direction from the one it went. It's basically been in decline since the early 60s, late 50s. The problem with Hoffa was that he was basically amoral and corrupt by any conventional definition. He did not uh, comply with the law. He was indifferent to conventional morality. He would do business with anyone on any terms that he thought would help him increase his power and his union's power. So he did a lot of business and made a lot of accommodations, for example, to organize crime. He paid off politicians and judges. And this ended up, uh, among other things, ruining the promise that he might have had for the labor movement. I want to ask you about that amoral categorization that you just suggested. I mean, it's possible to read your book and think that actually Hoffa did have a morality of a sort. And it was a morality that put the union above everything. And on that view, he would break any law as long as he was doing it for his union. But there's an alternative view that says, well, his union and Jimmy Hoffa, and he didn't really distinguish between those two. And I think that also sometimes comes through in the book. Where, where do you actually yeah. come down on that? All of the above. Mm -hmm. I think I tried to say conventional morality is what he defied. You could say that he had a moral principle and that was enhancing his power and the Teamsters power. And he saw those as the same thing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was the same thing. I mean, he had, he was collecting cash on the side from so many sources, from his union loans, from skims he had with employers and the like, but he was not spending the money on himself. He was spending it to enhance his power, which he was using to enhance the Teamsters power. So there's a story to tell that he was this truly principled labor leader, the principle being that he'll do anything to make his union better. He saw the state and management as basically being in bed with one another mm -hmm. and they were defying the laws. Mm -hmm. So he developed the view early on that law was something to be complied with when it, when it served your interests. You say in the book that Chucky, uh, Charles O'Brien, Chucky O'Brien was your father from your perspective, your stepfather uh, in technical terms, but your father. Right. And that Jimmy Hoffa was effectively a father figure to Chucky. Chucky called him dad and he referred to Chucky as his son. So in some sense, this is a book by the indirect grandson of Jimmy Hoffa and a less likely grandson of Jimmy Hoffa could hardly be imagined. I, I, someone who was slightly younger academic, who's, you know, looked up to you my whole career, always thought of you as Mr. Button Down, you know, establishment, Republican, rock rib commitment to the rule of law, rule of law over everything, you know, no matter what, even if your career is on the line, you got to stand up for the rule of law. So any lineage, however indirect to Jimmy Hoffa is kind of extraordinary, but that's the framework for the book, isn't it? So, yes, it is. I mean, I, I never met Hoffa. Hoffa disappeared six weeks after my stepfather came into my life, but yes, Chucky was closer to him than anyone. And he met him when he was nine and he was effectively Chucky's father. Chucky's never really knew his father and Hoffa became his effective father and Chucky revered him his entire life. And yes, uh, Chucky was my father and especially during 
the most important developmental period of my life, which was my teenage years, in which he had an enormous influence on me. And so the book is called In Hoffa's Shadow, and it's really about Chucky being in Hoffa's shadow as his son and the person who supposedly drove him to his death, and then my life in the shadow of both of them and in Chucky's shadow. There's an important ethnic dimension to this book. I mean, it's almost like a male, this book is a true melange of different American ethnicities or three main American ethnicities. Italian, Sicilian, Italian in particular, which is half of Chucky's heritage, and it's his mother Sylvia's Neapolitan family, or at least Sicilian family. Then there's the Irish side, because Chucky's last name is O'Brien. Right. Then there's Hoffa himself, who I think a lot of people, especially in my generation, imagine must have been Italian just because his name ends with a vowel. Of course, Hoffa is not an Italian name at all. No name in Italian starts with the letter H. He was actually of a Protestant yeah, family. Yeah, Dutch-Irish, I think. Yeah. So in Chucky's life, his Italianness seems always to have been an important part of his cultural identity, but he must also have felt very intensely that he wasn't fully Sicilian and therefore could never be, at least according to lore, uh, a made man. So he couldn't be a made man because he was half um, Irish. I, I, I describe a scene in the book where when he was a young man, that his mother arranged with the Detroit senior members of the Detroit family for him to have something akin to an initiation ritual. But it wasn't, he never became an official member of the mafia. He couldn't, as you say, because of his heritage. Uh, but even though he was half Irish and never technically a made man, he completely absorbed from a very young age his mother's identity. He listened to every word she said, and she taught him omerta from the very beginning. Omerta, the code of silence, plays a really fascinating role in your book. First, at one very basic plot level, it's the reason that Chucky won't tell you at least not until the very, very end of the book, no spoilers here, exactly what he does or doesn't know about Hoffa's disappearance. But Omerta also takes on the role of a kind of code of honor for Chucky. And that, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things that you say in the book is that, and that you show, not just say, but show, is how you and your different vicissitudes of your life and your feelings towards, towards Chucky, towards your dad, came ultimately to have some loving respect for his sense of honor. Now, how do you reconcile that with your own presumable non-embrace of the idea of a code of silence in connection with criminal activity? I mean, if anything, your public career is all about refusing to adopt a code of absolute silence. Basically, until I started having conversations with Chucky for this book, and indeed, after we started having conversations for this book, I viewed Omerta as self-serving, corrupt, crime-hiding, and opportunistic. And in, in some sense, that's what it is. I mean, it is a code that is designed to ensure, among other things, that you can break the law without um, being discovered. And um, so for Chucky, this was a huge principle, and it posed a problem for writing a book for me because uh, I needed to know what he knew. If I, The main thing I set out to do, at least originally, the book became much more complicated as I wrote it, but the main thing I came, set out to do was to clear him from the charge that he basically was the person who picked up his basically father and drove him to his death. And I didn't believe that. And I wanted to clear him, but I needed him to be honest with me. And I said this, it was the, it was the one condition I gave when, when we agreed to do the book together. I told him, you have to tell me the truth. He basically said, I'll try. And he did try. Um, but there was this constant roadblock because every time he got to the verge of telling me certain things, 
his mother's visage would appear in his head or Uncle Tony would appear in his head and he would stop. So over time, he told me a lot more than I think he intended to and maybe some things that he, he regretted a bit. And also over time, I came to admire his commitment to America. And here's how I can explain it. This is a man who for over 40 years has been falsely accused of basically driving Hoffa to his death. He lost everything because of the Hoffa experience. He lost his job. He lost his, his otherwise every other aspect of his honor. His reputation was ruined. His physical health was ruined. He had troubles with my family. He was basically destroyed by Hoffa's disappearance. He lost you in some He way. lost me. I mean, for, not right away, he lost but me eventually. For, he lost me for 20 years. Um, I'm not sure how much of a loss that was, but he thought it was. Well, from what you say in the book, yeah. it was an enormous it was, loss It was him. an enormous loss to him and something I didn't appreciate until later in my life. But the thing, the one thing he held on to throughout this entire period was this principle. And for him, it wasn't opportunistic and it wasn't instrumental either. It wasn't just self-preservation that it he wasn't would have been, so, something bad would have happened this, to him if he had said this, something. This wasn't about him worrying about something happening to him. It was because, as he said to me on more than one occasion, it's just not right. And the reason I came to admire it when I was pushing him and pushing him to tell me what he knew, and I didn't, I never tried to push him too hard. We, we had these strange lines that we both respected. I came to see how painful it was for him to struggle to tell me what he could and then, but not violate his own code, his own principles. And I saw how important it was to him. And I saw that it was the only thing that he had really held on to successfully and that he'd given it sounds dramatic, but it's true, given his life sort of meaning and order during mm -hmm. all of this terrible ordeal. Mm -hmm. And so at the very end, in our last conversation about the Hoffa disappearance, when I basically said to him, you know, I just really can't believe you're going to take the other things you know to your grave. And he basically said that was what's going to happen. And he was telling me this, not for any instrumental reason. He, in some sense, he had nothing instrumental to lose and everything instrumental to gain by telling me more than he told me. And I was, as I say in the book, I was in awe of what I described as, as his eccentric integrity. Mm -hmm. And it was, again, it's not a principle that I obviously adhere to. It's not something that I would have ever thought I would come to admire, but I came to admire his, uh, his commitment to it. Let's talk a little bit about your own trajectory of feelings about him in connection to your own life. Because this book is in part Memoir written by someone who's probably never going to write anything more memoiristic than this. Never. <laughs> um, you have this incredibly kind of idyllic in certain respects set of high school years where you are able to develop a relationship with Chucky, even though Chucky is the target of all of this extraordinary, you know, national pursuit, really. Right. So to understand this, when Chucky came into my life, I was uh, 12 years old. I'd never really had a father at that point. My mother had always been very ill. And I remember my childhood as, believe it or not, happy, but objectively it was, it was, it was not, not, it was not great. Yeah. And I didn't have any father figure in my life and I didn't realize any lack. I just dealt with it. But as soon as this man came into my life, Chucky O'Brien, it was, it was like heaven sent. And he showered me with attention and affection and love. We did everything together. I, basically admired everything he admired, including the Teamsters Union, the labor movement, what with the so-called mafia, as he as he called it. And so at the height of the Hoffa disappearance, 
uh, and, and he was just being harassed unbelievably, understandably so. There were good reasons for the government to suspect him. At the height of the Hoffa disappearance, when he was having all sorts of troubles in his life, both uh, with the government and with his own job, I don't, know, I don't know how he did it. He was this amazing father. And I really think that during the kind of five-year period in which he was, in which we were closest when I was a teenager, and I just think, it, but for his intervention, my life would have taken a very different uh, course. Then in the book, you talk about how you go to Washington and Lee to study, to go to college. And in a passage, a set of passages that I think is very meaningful to anyone who was once close with their, their father and then had some distancing, you really shift. Talk a little bit about that process of how you remake yourself from admiring the Teamsters and labor unions into, you know, I hope this is not meant, this is not meant in an offensive way, but you know, a kind of model young Republican who goes right. on to Yale Law School and then clerks for the Supreme Court and right. is well on his way to a, to a career in mainstream legal academia right. and Republican politics. So I didn't know any of that was going to happen sure. when I started to change. Although in some sense, I kind of laid the groundwork for that, I guess. Several things happened when I got to college. Um, so when I was a teenager, I just had never questioned Chuck I just, sometimes a little bit, but not really. I fundamentally didn't question Like him. a lot of teenagers with their fathers. Exactly. Yeah. And then I get to college and several things start happening. First, education and learning starts to become important to me. And it was something that he just didn't value at all. Second, I started reading books about the Hoffa disappearance. And the kind of objective reality was that Chucky had been involved in lots of criminality throughout his life. Uh, I started to worry about whether he would have a dangerous impact on my life. And then the third thing was that I started to think about my career. I started to look forward and think about me uh, out from under his shadow. And even in college uh, and before I went to law school, I had a dim sense that being associated with the leading suspect in the Hoffa disappearance would not be great, might not be great for my legal career, even before I started thinking about going for the government. But can I, can I ask, a, this is a, this is a personal question, but it's, yeah, it's a memoir. So yeah. there was a moment, you know, there you are, you graduated from Yale Law School, you've had, you're getting fancy clerkships. You even spent a summer at the law firm of Miller Cassidy, LaRocca and Lewin, very, very famous firm, which as you point out, was three of the four named partners were people who had spent time actually trying to put Jimmy Hoffa in prison. Which is why I, which is why you why went, I went there. I thought I, at that point, let me just say Miller Cassidy, as you said, was this, it's no longer with us, but it was a very prominent firm at the time. And it was run by people who basically put Hoffa in jail. But it was also a firm where there was some tolerance of big personalities. You could have easily become a famous trial lawyer. You know, the association indirect or otherwise with Hoffa might actually have given you some notoriety. And you would have been a famous, let's call it Democrat leaning figure in that in that world. But you very self-consciously at that point turned in the other direction. You went for government and not for Democratic administrations, but for Republican administrations. Well, I didn't. Somewhere in there, you became a conservative is what I'm trying to say. I did. I did. How did that happen? Yes. Okay. So was there any relationship between that and your life? So I I learned about that in writing this book. So I'll tell you the story. I told myself about that. And then I'll tell you what I learned in this book. Great. 1.0 and 2.0. So I had always, you know, Washington and Lee was kind of a conservative place. And I became somewhat conservative at Washington and Lee, but not terribly self-consciously. So I went to Oxford there. I kind of had an allergic reaction to the Mm anti-Americanism and kind of came to like Ronald Reagan there. Then I went to Yale. That was countercultural. Yes, it was countercultural big time. Then I went to Yale law school and the story I'd always, and I, I I didn't enjoy Yale law school, but I just found it intellectually and politically stifling. Mm -hmm. 
And I definitely grew more conservative at Yale Law School. And I'd always told myself, and this is partly the reason that I was reacting to what I viewed as unpersuasive or stifling or intellectually closed-minded mm-hmm. viewpoints at the Yale Law School at that time. Which were, for the most part, mainstream liberal. Like mainstream liberal, right. So I'd Yale Law School at that time was not, it was not the far left. It wasn't, no. It was, but it was definitely lockstep mainstream liberal. It was liberal. Lockstep, lockstep mainstream liberal, and it was also, it didn't have much tolerance for conservatives. I mean, there wasn't really anyone conservative on the faculty, and I just never really fit in. Yeah. And I became, I, I was drawn to conservative jurisprudence at the time, just because I also found liberal jurisprudence to be too freewheeling for what my views about law were at the time. But here's what I figured out writing the book. I also figured out, and this was as soon as I thought about this, it became obvious as to why I, I made these moves. Basically, everything I was drawn to in law school intellectually was anti-Chucky. So I took a labor law class. And I was naturally drawn to the employers. And I thought the pro-labor side of the arguments were unconvincing, both legally and otherwise. I was drawn to law and economics. And the law and economics view about labor unions is that they're inefficient cartels that are basically the the mainstream, at least the the, uh, Chicago school view, is bad for the world. I was drawn to conservative jurisprudence and criminal procedure. Chucky had always, you know, referred to judges and prosecutors and the justice department as corrupt, but I was drawn to them. Mm -hmm. And so part of my political identity at the time I now realize was part of separating from Chucky. And I was basically doing things and trying to establish a path that was my own path. And that was as much as I could figure out the opposite of the path from Chucky. And there's something very universal about that. I mean, you're not the first son to want to define himself very much in opposition to his father. So there you are doing that. And then comes the part where I got to know you, where you found yourself first in the Department of Defense in the post 9-11 period uh, as an advisor to the general counsel, and then subsequently at a crucial moment in our country's legal history and in our history generally in the Department of Justice. You touch only briefly in the book on your experiences there, but because you've written a whole book about it. Right. Um, but just say a word for the listeners about what to you was the most salient feature of your experience there. And then we'll bring that around to right. Chucky. So I had a job briefly where we met in the Department of Defense uh, for a year. And it was a job that was didn't have a lot of responsibility and it was fun. And I worked there for a year and I was headed back to the academy. And then I kind of accidentally was offered the head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department which was this very consequential, very prestigious and supposedly intellectually fun place to work. When I was offered the job, I took it. I thought it was um, you know, great. I thought it was going to be fun and interesting and important work uh, that I believed in. I was very naive when I went to work at the Office of Legal Counsel. It was two years uh, into after 9-11 and I had no idea what was going on in secret. Some of the controversial things the Bush administration was doing in secret stuff that subsequently come out, the interrogation and black site program, the warrantless wiretapping program uh, known as Stellar Wind. I can't believe I can say those words, but I can now. And those two programs, especially when I got there through a very complicated set of events, I was required to address their legality, even though it had already been ruled upon and had been relied, and those rulings had been relied upon. And I could not find my way to signing off on them. And both of them I had strong objections to and took steps as best I could. It was a completely unprecedented situation from start to finish in terms of removing or withdrawing opinions that have been relied on in the middle of war and intelligence operations. 
So knowing what the right thing to do was, was very hard. It was also just um, impossibly stressful because basically I was being told that if I do these things, people are going to get killed. All these people who are out in the world relying on these opinions to fight against Al-Qaeda, I would be undermining them. Uh, so it was a very, very difficult time. And then exercising your own version of eccentric integrity, you did what you thought you had to do as a legal matter, and then you resigned. I did. I resigned in June, uh, basically nine, ten month, nine and a half months after I got there, after I had uh, withdrawn one of the torture opinions, I, w- I resigned. Which led to some of the people who had seen you as a friend and ally, seeing you as somehow a critic or someone on the outside or someone who had let them down or maybe broken their version of the code of Omerta. I didn't think about it that way, but let's just say that I wasn't terribly, uh, I wasn't viewed well in Bush administration circles. I was viewed as someone who, I mean, it was, I was viewed very uncharitably, someone who was acting politically, trying to cover my own bottom. These are preposterous. Indeed, the reason I wrote the terror presidency, I wasn't even going to write a book about my time in the Bush administration. But when people in the Bush administration started charging me with acting in an unprincipled way and being political and trying to cover my bottom, I decided... Well, there's another side to that. I'm, I'm going to tell it. I mean, I, every step I took, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing or not. I, it was very, very difficult. So then you emerge from a, this extraordinary public experience of standing on principle as you understood it, um, being praised by the people who were not your friends before, people to your left, who suddenly you were, you were everybody's favorite conservative. Not, not my favorite moment, I have not to tell you. Not your favorite moment. And criticized by the people who you were friends and allies. Also and not in, my favorite moment. And in just that moment, and I think this is just poetically incredible, you decide to reconcile with Chucky. Right. Not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. This whole thing in the government, it was entirely discombobulating. It was discombobulating to my view of the world, to my view of right and wrong, to my tendency to be judgmental when I was a younger man, to my religious faith. Uh, which it redoubled and strengthened, it sounds like. Enormously when I was in the government. I, it really deepened and, and went on a, in a different path. For all these reasons, plus, as I said earlier, I had two tiny little babies and my affection, my love for my children and my vulnerability towards them caused me to rethink entirely what I had done to Chucky, especially since, um, you know, basically when I was at the pinnacle, the thing that I had renounced him so that I could achieve in a way 20 years earlier. And I got to the, what was supposedly the pinnacle. And I got there inside the justice department, this place that he had always derided as law-breaking, corner-cutting, self-serving and the like. And lo and behold, if he wasn't in some sense, which he could barely articulate, but in a very real concrete sense, he was right. So all of these experiences led me to uh, be much more humble and uh, about myself and judging others and to really deeply regret the pain I caused him. And my mother and my brothers had always told me what extraordinary pain I caused him. But until I had my own children, I really didn't appreciate what that was like. And then there's this incredible, deeply Christian, though not in a doctrinal sense, but in the spiritual sense, prodigal son moment in the book, which I alluded to earlier, where you go back to Chucky and you tell him that you're sorry. Yeah. And in to me, one of the most moving moments that I can imagine. Tell me what, what, we, what he we, says. We were, we were sitting watching Seinfeld one night and complete, and this was a, I'd come down there and it was the first time I had seen him. It was the second time I'd seen him in 20 years. And the first time I'd been nice to him. I just wasn't very nice to him. I was not nice to him. We had a great couple of days together. He was clearly very happy that we were getting along. 
after so long of not talking and not getting along. And we're sitting there watching Seinfeld and I didn't really give it a lot of thought. I knew I wanted to ask for his forgiveness. And I turned to him and I said, I'm so sorry what I did to you and all the pain I caused you for those 20 years. I'm just terribly, terribly sorry. And I hope you forgive me. And he was not well at the time. He's not well now, but he was not well at the time. And he had, he had severe diabetes and he looked at me and his face was, was ashen. And he looked at me with a puzzled look and his eyes watered and he looked both surprised and shocked. And he said to me, basically, um, I, you don't have to ask my forgiveness. I understand why you did what you did. And I love you very much. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a better or a richer answer that a father could give a son. It was basically what he had written me 25 years earlier when I blew him off. He wrote me this extraordinary letter that I, that I reproduced yeah. in the book in which he basically said, you've hurt me a lot, but I can take it. And you have to make your decisions now that you're a young man. This was 20 years earlier, but I just want you to know that I love you very much. And it was basically the same thing that he said when I asked for his forgiveness and he gave it. And he, he gave it without any qualification, without any, I told you so's, without any regret or rancor. We just, from that moment on, it was just, a, it was as if those 20 years didn't happen. And I think from your perspective, maybe tell me if this is right. This book is your second response to his letter. This is a loving response to his letter. It's a book length yes. response to his expression of love. And I read the book itself as an expression of, of your love for him. There's, there's objectivity in it and there's judgment and there's an attempt to come to terms with your father in terms of who he was and with yourself and with your indirect grandfather. So there's honesty pervading it, but I think it's also a book written from deep love. It, it certainly was. I mean, I, I set out to write the book with the narrow goal of trying to give him a fairer shake than history had given him and hopefully to clear his name from the terrible stain of having been the person who drove Which Papa to his death. Done. Yeah. It definitely set out as that it grew to be so much more complicated in ways that I couldn't have uh, imagined. And the reader will have to decide whether I, whether it seems like an act of love. It certainly was that to me, but at the same time, as you say, I felt like I had to be candid and credible to try to clear him. I'm an interested observer. And so I'm, you know, in times in describing him in the book, I'm tough. I'm tough on myself as well. But yes, it was an act of love and um, really an act of hopeful atonement. The book is extraordinary. And even if a reader had never heard of Jimmy Hoff, I think it would be an incredible read. And I think uh, as somebody who also knows you and looks up to you, the book is really, really profoundly moving. Thank you very much. Thank Jack. you. You're very kind. Thanks, Owen. Jack Goldsmith's book is called In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. 
Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. And now for our sound of the week. Those are airstrikes hitting the Syrian town of Ras Al Ain on the Syrian-Turkish border this Wednesday. Those are the sounds of an invasion that certainly looks like the beginning of a war in which the government of Turkey will attempt to cleanse a large swath of territory in northern Syria of Kurds who see themselves as the enemies of Turkey and whom Turkey treats as terrorists. In one way, this is just another manifestation of a historical truth over the last century in the Middle East. Namely, the Kurds almost always lose. Big powers that surround the areas where they live, whether it's Turkey, Iran, Syria, Iraq, or ultimately the United States as an outside actor, have consistently blocked the Kurds from achieving their dream of a larger and more significant country called Kurdistan. In that sense, the betrayal of the Kurds, this time by the United States government, authorizing effectively the Turkish government to go in and clear the Kurds out of this part of Syria is simply business as usual in the brutal history of the Middle East. What makes this instance particularly nasty, however, is how recently the United States was completely dependent on these particular Kurdish militias to fight the battle against the Islamic State. Remember, almost nobody in the region wanted to provide boots on the ground to fight ISIS. The United States did not want to provide significant numbers of soldiers. And as a consequence of the slow process whereby other countries stepped up, it took years to eliminate the brutality of the Islamic State and reduce it to the tiny rump organization that it is today. The Kurds bore the brunt of the fight against ISIS. And now the United States has betrayed them and done so in a spectacularly obvious way. Does this shock the Kurds? Probably not. 
Does it sadden everybody who thinks that the United States should stand by its allies? Yes, it absolutely does. The question that remains is, is the immorality of the betrayal of the Kurds justified in light of realpolitik? That's a question that actually can't be answered with any great precision. Many people with good knowledge of the situation on the ground, including a good number of former U.S. military generals, have taken the stance that the United States is shooting itself in the foot by siding with Turkey against the Kurds. Because if we fail to stand by our allies, no one will stand up and fight with us the next time. That's a realist argument for why the abandonment is a bad idea. Yet it's also inevitably the case that when it comes to finding allies in the Middle East, everyone knows the name of the game. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Kurds had no particular love for the United States. They did deal with the United States to fight ISIS because it was in their interests. Meanwhile, the United States acted similarly. In that sense, Realpolitik says, betray your enemies whenever you want. You always know you can get away with it in the end. I don't think ultimately that the question of the morality of the American act, which is unquestionably lousy, can outweigh the realpolitik argument in real-world, hard-nosed Middle Eastern politics. So we need to ask about the bigger picture consequences of this particular action by Turkey, which the United States has effectively embraced. And here is where the realpolitik arguments against the Turkish invasion of northern Syria become especially strong. After all, what's Turkey doing? It's not just ridding itself of potentially pesky Kurdish militias on its border. Turkey is also aspiring to create a substantial area that will be a haven for a couple of million Syrian Sunni Arabs who at present are stuck in Turkish refugee camps and who, according to Turkey, will now live quasi-permanently in the northern part of Syria that is not the part of the country where they traditionally lived, but is in fact the place where Kurds traditionally lived. Put another way, what Turkey is doing is trying to effectuate an ethnic cleansing and the replacement of one Syrian population, Syrian Kurds, with another Syrian population, Syrian Arabs, right along their border. The history of such population transformations in the region is a long one, and it is almost inevitably a story of failure. Moving populations around creates new conflicts, angers people, creates permanent resentments, creates a sense of permanent refugee status, displaces some people to the benefit of others, and doesn't even give all the advantages that one would hope for to the people who are in fact being settled there. It is a fake solution to the Syrian refugee crisis. That is what is pragmatically wrong with the United States government standing by and allowing the government of Turkey to engage in this transformation of the northern part of Syria. So, when you hear that the United States has betrayed the Kurds, that's true, it's morally wrong, but on its own, it's not enough of an argument to say that pragmatically this was a mistake. The true mistake lies in the naive fantasy that by putting a new population in a new part of Syria, Turkey can somehow solve the Syrian refugee crisis. It can't. The consequences will be eventually renewed civil war, greater violence, and more deaths. And that's why we should feel sad when we hear the sound of Turkish military attacks on Syria. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. 
Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Pushkin.